I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from you so you... Ideas from you. Well, I do learn ideas from you each and every day. You to learn ideas from me that'll help you save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. And learn ideas from you, too. Coming up in just a few minutes, I want to tell you about the new trends with ripoffs, financial cons, what you need to be aware of, what you need to look out for. And coming up later, the average age of a vehicle in the United States is the oldest it's ever been. When's it time for you to give that vehicle a send-off? I want to talk right now about you giving a loan a send-off. So you think about the areas we borrow money in. We borrow principally for a home, for a vehicle, or on credit of some kind, credit card, personal loan, uh, home equity line of credit. Those are, you know, you think about those are the main things. And then for people who went to college, student loans. But something that has frustrated callers to my show for as far back as I can remember when people first became aware of credit scoring is that you are punished, not rewarded, when you become debt-free, when you no longer have a vehicle loan, when you no longer have a mortgage, that when you start eliminating types of credit, the scoring models that the banks use punish you for not carrying all different kinds of debt. Now, they say with a straight face is because they have a harder time figuring out what kind of risk you are if you don't owe money for every last thing. (laughs) Kind of weird, huh? So you pay off a loan, and you potentially could see a credit score drop of 50 points paying off a loan. I'm not talking about paying off a credit card. Paying off a credit card actually boosts your score. But you pay off something like you're done with your mortgage, you're done with uh, any vehicle loans, then the lenders will turn around and kick you in the rear end because you don't owe money for those things anymore. Now, I'm asked what you should do about it. And generally, you don't need to do anything because if your credit score is healthy enough The fact that they pinched your score by having paid off a loan, let them have their pound of flesh giving you a lower score. Because in reality, once your score is in the mid-700s or higher, it doesn't really matter. And there are all these people who try to get an 850 credit score, which is a perfect score, and... To my knowledge, I've never had an 850, but I don't carry any kind of loans at all other than I use credit cards. And my scores are consistently a little below or a little above 800. So, so what I can't get to an 850 doesn't matter because any kind of borrowing I did need to do, I'm good for. It's only if your credit has been kind of marginal 
that not having all those loan products could come back to burn you. But I want to explain one thing that has confused so many people over the years. You do not raise your credit score by leaving a balance open on a credit card. Your credit score involving credit cards is determined by having activity on one, paying it on time, and using very little of the available credit. But this this uh, misperception, I guess we'll call it, this suburban legend that running a balance on a card raises your score, absolutely not true. It's just a myth that puts more money in the hands of the banks by charging you their ridiculous rates of interest on cards. Brian's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Brian. Hi, Clark. Brian, how can I serve you today? Sure. Um, on, a, on a recent podcast, you advised a wife that her husband's desire to move all their 401k and IRA investments into fixed securities when the market was high is a bad idea uh, because additional growth in retirement is necessary to keep up with inflation and not run out of money. And I understand that. Uh, but my question is more particular to uh, a situation where you might be nearing retirement and you have planned withdrawals of funds to live on and a certain percentage annually. Would it be a good idea to convert two to three years of income worth of stocks and bond funds and retirement account into fixed securities so that if the market does take a downturn, when you need to draw assets, you don't get crushed in a down market? I uh, completely agree. I think it's great to have uh, two or three years of money, not necessarily in fixed securities, because with fixed securities, you're referring to bond funds, some kind? Well, not necessarily money market, but essentially cash that wouldn't have a lot of fluctuation. Yeah, cash, cash equivalents uh, could be a ultra short bond fund. It could be in CDs. It could be in savings accounts. You don't want to be in a position when you no longer have income coming in of having a stock market decline and being forced to sell shares at a bad time in order to generate the cash you need to live currently. And that's why having some amount of cash available in retirement is great, whatever you would define cash as being. So I'm a big fan of that. All right. Well, thanks. That helps, Clark. Well, have a great day. And um, I'm so glad you're in a position that we can talk about being able to put cash aside somewhere. Well, I'm shooting for that. Okay. Well, you know, uh, something I want to talk about soon is that people are, in fact, putting aside, uh, a lot of people putting aside more money each month than they have in the past. There's new data about that I want to address soon. Amit is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Amit. How are you? Good. How are you, Clark? Great. Thank you. Amit, how can I serve you today? Uh, So end of last year, uh, I paid off my home mortgage, and uh, I received a letter from the bank acknowledging the payoff, and then they also sent me a follow-up with a copy of the record of mortgage discharge. 
And I was just wondering, uh, going forward, what kind of documentation I need to hold on to and uh, in terms of um, ensuring that the title for the house is free and clear and in my name and anything else that you might recommend I should monitor going forward. So what you have from the from the mortgage company saying that you have satisfied the note, I want mm-hmm. you to keep that. And if you use something like Google Photos where you can keep a digital record of things forever for free, I'd like you to okay. take a picture of that, you know, have a digital file of that so that if the paperwork ever went missing, you have mm-hmm. at least a digital representation of that. Um, But the things I want you to have with a home, this is a home you're still living in, right? That's correct, yes. So I want you to have, uh, in addition to having that document showing you've paid it off, I want you to make sure you have your original closing documents for when you bought the home. Okay. And I'd like for you to have a digital copy of at least the first couple of pages, you know, that closing statement. So if you ever Mm -hmm. lost that paperwork, you have that. And then any major improvements you do to the house over the years adjusts your basis, which uh, basis is determining um, you have a purchase price for the home, the cost of buying it, plus the expenses involved with Mm. consuming that transaction. And then over the years, there'll be big things you have to do to the house. They do what's called adjust the basis or... The, or the original value plus those improvements, you want to keep that kind of documentation because when you sell the property, if you end up with a big gain in it, you can sometimes run past the sheltered amount of a sale that's not subject to tax. And so you can save yourself big money by being able to document improvements that are big ones that you've done over the years. Okay, great. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that information, Clark, and uh, thank you for all that you do for uh, people to educate us on our personal finances. I really appreciate it. Certainly, and congratulations to you on being mortgage debt-free. I'm sure that feels great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. S- certainly. And Roger is with us. Roger, you have another real estate-related question for me. Hi, Roger. Hi, Clark. Good to, good to talk to you. Thanks for all you do. Absolutely. So you are in a position to do something really neat. You're thinking of selling a property and then being the bank for the buyer. Is that right? Yes. Um, we have a small property in Florida. It's manufactured home, and it's on a resort. Consequently, uh, banks typically do not write mortgages on these. So... We uh, were able to offer owner or seller financing on these. Now, how so, much down um, payment are you going to get from the buyer? What percent down payment? 20% down, and then we're going to do a 4% loan for 20 years with a five-year balloon payment. Okay, so you're going to amortize over 20, but it's due in five. Right. All right, that sounds so, like... Like, uh, did I get that right? Yes, that's correct. All right, that sounds like you set up a good fencing around the deal that protects you uh, really well on the sale of the property, and you made your property so much more attractive because of the difficulty people have with financing. 
uh, you're you're creating the solution for that. Right. We were able, actually able to buy the property because we have a uh, home equity loan, you know, with a substantial uh, amount that we could pay cash for. So my question is, you know, we've never done this before, obviously. So we're wondering uh, when the people make the payment to us, is there a preferred vehicle to make that happen? I was thinking maybe there's some sort of a lockbox that they could make the payment to that I would then get the money out of. No, you're 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 creating to... way too much work for for you and for them. Tell me what the monthly payment is. It'll be uh, around five. 70 in that area. I don't have the numbers with oh, me right now. Oh, that's perfect for them paying you through the Cash App or Venmo. Are you familiar okay. with either of those? Yeah, we have the Cash App. So um, using the Cash App for them to, to pay you, I mean, landlords are doing this with rental properties. I've not heard of people doing it for owner financing, but it would work just the same at the kind of monthly mortgage you'd be being paid. And you will have to go through a verification system with Square to be able to receive a payment of that size. But as long as you go through that, it's great because the the tenant I mean the tenant, the the buyer paying you the mortgage, they can do it in just a second and you have the money like pronto right there. And there can't ever be something, well, it's lost in the mail or anything like that. Right. We wanted to be able to protect both buyer and seller. And so since you... I thought I heard you say one... Go ahead. I thought I heard you say one time that 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 wasn't really the purpose of those cash or Venmo apps. Well, what I've said is that in a situation where you don't know who you're doing business with, use it with family and friends only. So in this case, I'm stretching what's a friend because this is a a situation where you're a known quantity to that buyer, um, you know each other, and it is an incredibly efficient way to pay. But what's especially advantageous to you is if you're in a situation where the buyer is short of cash one month, they can still send you money. It'll cost them where they have to pay a credit card processing fee. But the key is that it keeps money flowing to you. And that's why, okay. that's why I see that as a very uh, good way for you to get this done. Today's Clark Rageous moment is absolutely a stunner to me. It's a new report about the amount of fraud going on, financial fraud known as Ponzi schemes, where somebody cons you with a business idea that they get you to quote-unquote invest in, and then they run off with the money and buy fancy jets and estates and all that, and you're left with nothing but broken promises. A new report from the Securities and Exchange Commission, that's the federal agency over the investing community, finds that the number of people who've been ripped off in just the last many years, 4.3 million Americans who thought they were investing in a real thing that ended up getting taken. 
the average person getting taken for $150,000 approximately in these cons. I can tell you that historically, they very heavily target small business owners, entrepreneurs, and senior citizens. And they will promise you that they have non-traditional investments that you can invest in. One of the big changes from Ponzi's generally in the past is they promise very low returns, relatively speaking, low enough that it doesn't make you think, oh, this must be just a con. They might promise you 8, 10, 12% a year on your money. And maybe the money flows for a while till they run out of it and then you're left flat broke. It's my pleasure to have you here with us on the Clark Howard Show where it's all about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Deal or no deal. You've kept a vehicle on the road year after year after year and now it's getting kind of old. Things are starting to go wrong on that thing. Is it time for you to dump it? So I've noticed a pattern that a lot of times people will want to dump a vehicle because it's just become a hassle. Because first this thing broke and that thing broke and then the other thing broke. And there's a point at which you want to get rid of it because it's, it's not reliable anymore. You don't want to have a problem where you get in the vehicle and it doesn't want to go. So that is absolutely a reason to get a new vehicle. Could be new to you or new. But how about the dollars and cents? So Consumer Reports and I have always disagreed about this. Consumer Reports has said, and you know they may well be right on this, that when the cost of repairing something that has croaked on your vehicle exceeds the remaining value of the vehicle, that's when it's time for you to dump it and get something else, when you're just looking at dollars and cents. I, on the other hand, have said, thinking about the human side of this and the aggravation and the nervousness about a vehicle not being reliable anymore, is that when the cost of a repair runs past 50% of the remaining value of the vehicle, that's when it's time to dump it. Now, here's the greatest irony of that. You may need to go ahead and repair the vehicle anyway, because if you try to get rid of it at that point is one that's not operating, you get clobbered on the value. So even if you've decided, I'm done with it, this vehicle's out of my life, it's out of your life after you repair it, and then you sell it off. But I find that most people tire of a vehicle before the vehicle's tired, and you dump it prematurely, and that's expensive. I mean, the average age of a vehicle on the road now is roughly 12 years. But most people don't keep a vehicle anywhere near its 12th year. And so the longer you keep a vehicle, the better it is for your wallet. Because if you've ever seen one of the curves of depreciation for a vehicle from year 1 to 10, 
It starts off like a scary roller coaster through the first four years of ownership. And then after that, it's just almost like a gentle, gentle, gentle decline. And that's when your money's working for you the more years you keep it moving and on the road. The good news for you moving forward is that as the vehicle fleet steadily moves to electric vehicles from gas engine ones, there's virtually nothing that can break in an electric vehicle. And the batteries after the first wave of batteries were not that reliable. Today, the batteries on electric vehicles are losing virtually no efficiency in the first 100,000 miles on the road and minimal in the first 200,000 miles on the road. And there's nothing else to do to one other than get new tires on one pretty much. So the cost of ownership is a tiny fraction of the cost of ongoing ownership for a gas engine vehicle. The best deal of all in the marketplace is buying a used electric vehicle and driving that for a long time. Robin's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Robin. Hello. How are you doing, Robin? I'm just great. Thank you for asking. Robin, you got a question for me about something you bought at um, Costco? I am preparing to buy, and I was doing research and looked on your website and looked on the big box store website. What I have found with all of them is, yes, there is a refund that can be bought. Um, The reason I'm questioning is, what do you do with returns when you've already opened up the mattress, it's expanded, and how are you supposed to get, get it back in your car to get it to the store and lug this big thing in that's blown up (laughs) into the store. That doesn't say anything about that. You know, uh, yes, they'll return it, but getting it there, uh, I mean, how, how, right, right. This is a great question. This is a great question. So the mattress business is going through a complete revolution in the United States. Okay. And the way people bought mattresses in the past is really pretty much done where people Mm -hmm. would go to a mattress store and you'd very self-consciously lie down on a few mattresses. Mm -hmm. You'd buy Mm -hmm. the thing, and then you'd get it home, and you'd think, why did I like this, or why did I let the salesperson talk me into this Mm -hmm. one? This is the worst piece of junk, or why did I spend all that money on it? So the people have hated buying mattresses. And Mm -hmm. so starting... Uh, many years ago with one particular seller that started selling mattresses online, the industry then was um, deluged with dozens of online sellers that all pretty much have a three-month or so unconditional right to return them. Correct. And -hmm. what they do at most of them is they know there's no way once you get one of those mattresses home and cut it open and it it comes alive like some scary blob in a 1950s movie, there's no way for, other than having four or five really strong people to get that thing out to a truck that you might have to rent or get your friend with a pickup truck to haul it back for you. 
So they all generally offer a pickup service for free if you buy one and hate it. Oh, okay. So if you buy one on the website, so if you buy one at Costco, Mm -hmm. I don't know that Costco does anything like that. I think you have to go get that truck and haul it back to them if you hate it. They take it back, but Mm -hmm. I think you've got to haul it back. Okay. Okay. So if you buy from Casper, which was the original, or you buy from Purple, or you buy from Lisa, or I mean, there are dozens of these. I don't even know why I mentioned three Mm -hmm. of them, I guess, because they're bigger sellers. You buy Mm -hmm. from any of them, you'll see on their websites that it's no hassle return, that Mm -hmm. they come and get it, and then they they donate them to shelters usually. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, you, after three months, hate one, you're going to know. I mean, you know, and Mm -hmm. you're going to be able to get your money back without risk or hassle. So I would Mm -hmm. call Costco and call member services at your closest Costco and say, what happens with these mattresses if I buy one of these mattresses in a box and I don't Mm -hmm. like it? How do I get rid of it? Because I'm sure they've had the question before. The same would be true buying one from Sam's Club. Or Walmart. Walmart's a huge seller of these mattresses now that come in the compressed boxes. How do you return the thing if it turns out to be a dud? Tony's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Tony. Hello, Clark. Good to hear from you. Well, great to have you here. How can I serve you, Tony? Yes, sir. For the last 28 years, I have had the same uh, credit card. And recently, I received a double whammy from that credit card because uh, my family and I served as missionaries in Bolivia, South America for 18 years, and we used to fly with the air miles. And we've made several trips back and forth, and uh, we live stateside now. But even this past summer, we went back to Bolivia, family of five, with the air miles and only paid $700 in fees. Well, I just found out that that particular airline is no longer going to fly to Bolivia. And then just this past week, my credit card suspended the roadside assistance and trip protection service. So now I'm wanting to know what would be a good credit card to apply for so that I could get air miles and then also roadside assistance. So roadside assistance has become a vanishing thing with the various travel cards and it's a lot of the cards have been after going through a a, a period of time that they were offering all kinds of add-ons with the cards the cards have been very heavily cutting back Um, Citibank got a lot of negative publicity when they chopped benefits from most of their cards a long list of benefits that they had offered And so this is an area that's become more difficult. The miles, the points for you being able to fly to Bolivia are so valuable to you that I would focus on that and not the roadside assistance. If it meant you have to pay $80 a year to be a AAA member or something like that, go ahead and do that. But I would instead look at who's going to get you the most bang for every dollar 
for you to get those points you need. Now, yes, sir. there are a number of multi-airline cards that basically uh, you're a free agent and the points can be used on anybody. How much annual fee were you paying on this airline card? I was paying $95 a year, but the upside to that was um, it was for one specific airline. And so I would only need about 35,000 air miles to go round trip. And so five of us went this summer for less than $700 round trip. And then um, also uh, the $95 uh, included no foreign transaction fees like normally Visa or MasterCard International would charge 3%, but by paying the $95, I did not pay any transaction fee. Well, the good news for you is that fewer and fewer cards have the foreign currency transaction fees anymore. That Those oh, have pretty much gone away. The card that review after review says is the best one to earn points that can be used on uh, many different airlines is the Chase Sapphire Preferred, which is a $95 annual fee. That's why I was curious yes, what you're paying. Have you looked at that one as a potential? Chase Sapphire Preferred. Preferred. I have not. Look at that one because that one has the highest customer satisfaction of any okay. multi-airline card Make sure that okay. the redemptions you'd have for Bolivia are as positive as possible. And one other thing I'm sure you know is a regular traveler to Bolivia, which I've been to just once, and it's a wonderful tourist destination, is to look always for what redemption you'd have to do from Miami. That often the fares to Bolivia are so much cheaper from Miami, even turning redeeming for points that you can buy a domestic ticket to Miami separate from the redemption you do for uh, flying to Bolivia, and the combination may end up saving you a lot of money. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com slash ask. And maybe producer Joel will ask your question for you. Joel, who are you asking a question for? All right, Clark, we got one from Veronica. She says, my son is attending college in the fall. He'll most likely go out of state. We didn't get much financial aid, so we're looking at around $45,000 a year in tuition. Yuck. I know, right? She says, wait, I wait, that's that's 180000 before any increases or anything like that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so she says, I only have around 12000 
oh. saved in his college fund. My You're husband, killing me here, Veronica. <laughs> my husband and I have excellent credit. What are the best options when it comes to applying for student loans? So, Veronica, I'll answer this, but I would like to encourage you, please, to consider talking with your son about spending two years at community college near you, cut that cost down from uh, what will be borrowing a mountain of money to half that amount. You never want to borrow more for an undergraduate degree than what you're likely to earn the first year from that degree. This is a giant burden that you would be carrying as parents out of love for your son, and I'd rather you rethink it instead of borrowing that kind of money. Uh, But as far as borrowing the money, you will find that your son can borrow a small amount under the uh, federal student loan program, but then most of it will fall on you in a parent plus loan. Those are not great interest rates. They are right now, currently, I think they're about six point, I'm trying to remember. Uh, it's, it's a pretty high number for those rates. And I'm very, very nervous about the amount of money you're thinking of borrowing. And I would strongly encourage a family conference where you talk about the burden you'd be carrying and whether it's really a great idea to carry such a large burden. All right, Clark, Megan's got a question and says, I know you know we're getting into fall and into winter as well, and you advise people to turn their heat down when leaving the house. Yet every HVAC service person I've talked to advises me to leave the heat at one setting because it takes just as much power to reheat the home. What do you think? I want to save money. I hate to disagree with a professional in the industry, but the math shows pretty strongly that when you leave to go to work for the day or wherever you're gone for a, a meaningful period of time, that it is better and you'll save a substantial amount of money and your system will not work as hard if you do dial back the thermostat. Don't turn it off or anything like that, but you dial it back and dial it back a decent amount from where you'd normally keep it. If you normally keep your house at 72 degrees, keep it at 62 when you're not there. Whatever you normally would keep it at for winter comfort, comfort, take it back 10 degrees for when you're gone. And best to use like a Nest thermostat, one of the computer-controlled ones that do it automatically that know when you're not around. This is the Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.